From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Today, we're dedicating our entire show to the story of Louisiana's largest rebellion of enslaved individuals in history. 212 years ago this month, Charles de Long led one of the largest known uprisings of enslaved individuals this country has ever seen. Known as the German Coast Uprising of 1811, this revolt saw more than 500 rebels travel down the Mississippi River towards New Orleans in a demonstration for freedom. Yet despite the significance of this event, some say it's largely been lost to history. Ray Lynn Barnes is an associate professor of history at Princeton University who's covered this rebellion. She joins us now. Ray Lynn, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Karen. Ray Lynn, would you start by telling us about the martyr at the center of the story, Charles DeLong? Who was he and, and how did he become this revolutionary figure? Sure. So in a lot of ways, we don't know a ton of information. Historians dispute whether or not he was born in Haiti or whether he was born in Louisiana. But we do know that he was a mixed race uh, Creole and that he spoke many languages, most likely French, um, most certainly. And he was very much inspired by the Haitian Revolution, which had just taken place. And that's really central um, backstory to what happens in the uprising of 1811. How did these enslaved individuals prepare for this rebellion? Was there any sort of plan in place, any organizing across different communities? Yes. So what's really amazing about this uprising is the absolute incredible diversity of lineage of these enslaved people who rose up to work together. Um, So many of them are what historians would call saltwater slaves or slaves who had been born in Africa on the West Coast in places like Congo, Ghana, the Ivory Coast. And the way that they had entered into slavery was typically through um, being captured as military troops in West Africa. And I say that because that means that these were people who were formally trained in warfare. They survived the Middle Passage across the Atlantic Most of them first labored in the Caribbean before being relocated to New Orleans and Louisiana. Many of them had been in Saint-Domingue, what became Haiti, um, because their enslavers absconded with them um, and took them to Louisiana so that they would not lose their wealth in the Haitian Revolution. And part of the reason why I bring up this incredible um, diversity is these were global people who saw the world um, in a way that most people in the 19th century did not. Granted, this was through forced migration, but many of them were cosmopolitan. They spoke English, Arabic, French, Spanish, Haitian Creole. Some of them had knowledge of native languages. And as I mentioned, they studied warfare. They were Muslim and Christian. Some practiced West African religions. Um, And that's part of what makes this story all the more powerful, because really the only common denominator with this incredibly diverse group of people was their status as bondsmen and bondswomen and their enslavement. So they had to overcome incredible linguistic, ethnic, tribal, and religious differences in order to decide, are we going to fight for our freedom? And are we going to trust each other, even though the penalty is surely death? 
Now, there's no written uh, transcript of their planning process for good reason. Obviously, you would not want to leave that evidence. But we do know that uh, Charles Delon did work with two men who were born in Africa and West Africa and therefore had been trained um, in warfare. All right. Um, well, tell us about that first rebellion, the encounter at the first plantation and how things took off and grew from there. The story begins um, at the Andre Plantation, which is about 41 miles upriver from New Orleans. Um, the owners, 54-year-old Manuel Andre and Marianne, were asleep in one of these massive mansions. It's approximately 4,000 square feet. Their son and daughter-in-law, Gilbert and Marie, were down the hall. Manuel wakes up in the middle of the night in this darkness, so he can't really see what's going on and suddenly recognizes that Charles de Lon, who is the leader of the German Coast Uprising, is standing over his bed with an axe. Now, de Lon had worked as a driver, and what I mean by that is he was not a coachman, he was not a chauffeur. That is a term for someone who was an enslaved person forced to maintain the violent production of the other approximately 80 enslaved beings on the sugar plantation and sugar mill. And so Manuel wakes up groggy. He can only see sort of through the natural light to find this man that who he had given some mitigated power um, standing over his bed with an ax. Manuel leaps for his life. He and his wife try desperately to get down their doubled staircase. And they're shocked because they keep encountering more and more armed black men dressed in military garb. Um, the enslaved insurgents managed to cut three large gashes in his torso. But I think it's really interesting to stop and think about the fact that um, Deslan did not kill the couple in their sleep. He easily could have. He could have slit their throat. But a lot of historians believe that he wanted them to see him. He wanted them to be terrified and know what he was doing um, because they lived, meaning enslaved people, under a total regime of terror. And so he's taking back his power and sort of saying, you know, I'm in charge now. The couple tries to rush out of the house and they're trying to get down towards the water to the Mississippi and they're passing this long line of now self-liberated men. There's at least 25 men at this first encounter and soon, as you mentioned, there will be hundreds. And this must have been a very baffling scene because not only did they have military garb, they had flags, um, but they also had battle drums. And that's another key or insight into the fact that these had been um, enslaved people who had previously been trained in military tactics. Um, interestingly, in the United States, for most of enslavement, drums were outlawed. And it's because in West Africa and in the Caribbean, drums could be used as a form of military communication, a signal. Um, and so the fact that these drums are going not only um, is propelling the marchers and gathering more people to join the revolt, but it's also instilling an incredible amount of fear in the white enslavers because they essentially know or fear that the long... Uh, suspicion that something like Haiti would happen has now come. 
the initial group of rebels was small at that first plantation. But I know as they marched, as they made their way to New Orleans, they gathered more, didn't have the weaponry that they would face later. They're, they're moving, I'm, I'm guessing, with whatever they could find on the plantation. That's an interesting thing. So this is why they start at the Andre plantation, because it's not just where um, Charles Delon had worked, but because Louisiana in this moment is a territory, it's actually the place where they have all of the armament. And so there's a very intentional reason that they're going to the Andre plantation. It's an arms depot. Ah. And so part of why they don't focus on killing the couple, um, they do actually pretty violently murder um, his son, Gilbert, is they don't really care about the, the couple. They need to get to the weapons. They have a larger insurrection in mind. Um, and so, yes, you're correct that the, the, the things that they would typically be working with are axes and hoes, but they needed firearms. They needed swords, um, horses. Um, and so that is why it's believed that the the revolution starts where it does. And they were able uh, to gather these these um, weapons at this first plantation. They did decide to march south, though. I wanted to ask you about that. We hear stories of enslaved people using the Mississippi River to head north to free states. Why were they traveling to New Orleans? So eight years before, we have, in 1803, the Louisiana Purchase. Thomas Jefferson acquires the equivalent of about 15 states uh, throughout Middle America, ranging from about the Rocky Mountains. So the, the name is a bit misleading. And the main focus was who can control New Orleans really controls the Atlantic world in this moment. New York is not the major port in the United States. It's New Orleans. And so, um, as you mentioned, they gather and we know miraculously some of their names. So there's Charles Cook, Lindor, who was a drummer, Jupiter, Cesar, Hector, Louise, um, Hippolyte, Harry, Cupidon, Mingo, Omar, Alsan. So even there, you're, you're getting a sense of how diverse this was. And what they start chanting while they're walking is, to New Orleans, to New Orleans, take New Orleans, take New Orleans. And before they leave, they light the plantation on fire. So for all of the enslaved people in the region to see a plantation alight um, and to go up in flames in the middle of the night is a symbol or a beacon of hope. But for white people, at first, they're not entirely sure what's going on. The Andres do eventually get across the river in a small canoe to notify the fellow white folk what is going on. But the combination of the drums and the fire and the marching signals to all of uh, the enslaved people in the region that they can go to the road and join. And in addition, they also are joined by um, the Marunage or the, the Maroons who are living in the back swamps. So these are people of African and African-American descent who had been a fugitive or self-liberating slave at some point and lived independently. And they mm. also have an incredible amount of knowledge of the landscape, how to hide, how to fortify it, how to survive. And the descriptions of this 
growing March are just incredible. We're speaking with Raylynn Barnes, Associate Professor of History at Princeton University, about the 1811 slave revolt led by Charles Delon. Let's talk some about this, the journey um, as, as, as they're making their way from plantation to plantation. The first plantation on fire, the owners have escaped. They're letting uh, the whites in the area know, hey, there's an uprising. What's happening as they're making their way to New Orleans? Absolutely. So women, children, Maroons, they all start joining the cause of these Black militants who are self-liberating, and they're joining from different plantations as they march downriver towards New Orleans. And you were right, as you mentioned, that this was a strategic um, military play. And the idea is if you capture New Orleans and Haiti is already free, you can start setting up a free black, not just republic, um, but hemispheric region to take control. And so their their ideas of liberation are quite expansive. They are informed by both the American Declaration of Independence and also the French Revolution. And so as they are marching, they actually make it a substantial distance. So in one night and one day without stopping, they marched 15 miles or halfway to New Orleans. And that was not easy because not only are they engaging in hand-to-hand combat and overtaking plantations, looting and burning them as they went, as I mentioned, it had been raining and flooding. And so they're dredging through feet of mud. Many enslaved people in this moment rarely have adequate clothing like shoes. Um, There are accounts of some people seeing um, enslaved people running into the night half-dressed, um, so desperate for freedom. And uh, Delon has everyone eventually stop and they rest at what's called uh, the four-tier plantation. And this is where some of their military uh, knowledge really kicks in. So they took over brick outhouses and they set up a perimeter. And at this point, as you mentioned, the white planters, fear-tinged with fury, begin to mobilize militia, and they call upon the government. So a man named General Wade Hampton, who had actually only come to New Orleans two days before with a very small army, suddenly found himself in charge as a federal representative to put down the largest slave insurrection in United States history. And so they know and are shocked to discover that Delon and his soldiers have created this fortification. And as they approach it, they're shocked to discover that Delon and all of his soldiers disappeared overnight. This was trickery in their warfare. They knew the landscape, they knew the swamps, they knew how to use it. And so they basically set the army into a dead end. But eventually, unfortunately, the two armies do meet. Um, Andre was able to write an account who does survive and he described it as the grand carnage or the grand slaughter. Um, and half of Delon's army flees into the swamps and the other half, there's, there's basically this huge bloodbath. Um, it's quelled, the uprising is quelled by January 10th. And this is where the new movement of the story begins, which is, um, the punishment and the capturing of 
the rebels. Yes, so and, and this all happens, we should say, in, in, in the space, it's a matter of days, by day two. Correct. So Charles Delon, what happens to him and and how does this how does the story end? What are some of the consequences here? So it's gruesome. In the early 19th century, punishment was very corporal. Um, and they very much wanted to send a signal that Louisiana and the United States was not going to be the new Haiti. And so they capture Charles Delon um, and they execute him. But before they do, they as a grim warning to others, proceed to mutilate and torture him. His arms were amputated while he was alive. His thigh bones were shattered. Um, they engaged in a lot of mutilation and torture, and then he was set on fire while alive. And so this becomes sort of the beginning of a very brutal crackdown and legacy from the white supremacist slave-owning um, power that's now backed by the the federal government. So in the bloody aftermath, scores of enslaved people are rounded up and they're tried in essentially kangaroo courts and condemned to death. One of the largest ones happens at the um, Destrahan plantation where 21 men were tried collectively. They were all condemned to death. Another 25 were condemned to death in New Orleans by a judge who actually had happened to be um, a refugee from Haiti. And so the crackdown was immediate. Their corpses were dismembered and mutilated. Uh, some of these men were hung between homes. And perhaps the most harrowing symbol is they removed their heads and put them on spikes along the river road for all to see as they continued to rot. Um, and this, you have to imagine, is a small community. And so when you are going up and down the road, if you need to go to New Orleans, if you need to go to another plantation, you are seeing the mutilated bodies of your neighbors, your mm. brothers, your cousins. Right. Um, and of course, this public display to, to warn anyone else uh, against any kind of uprising. Exactly. This is not Haiti. This this will not be tolerated. You will be killed. And this is what's going to happen to you. They also do this horrible thing where they um, take the ravaged bodies of some of the uh, men and leave them at the homes of their families to make it very clear um, what will happen to them. Um, and if this is of interest to you, at the Whitney Plantation in Wallace, Louisiana, there is a magnificent memorial to these 55 men. Um, and they it, it's a complex sculpture. They're, the men's heads are on these metal stakes or these silver rods. It's incredibly disturbing, but it's powerful and it's meant to be. And it really allows you to see if you if you go to the Whitney plantation, not just what everyday life was like on the plantation, but you can actually follow the course or the road that the revolutionary um, group took. That's amazing. Right. That's well, so you know, Raylan, I'm amazed that we don't hear or haven't heard more about this rebellion. People have heard of Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia, 1831. They may know of other rebellions. 
uh, by the enslaved, like the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina, even the Haitian Revolution. Why do you think it is that this story is less well known? And what do you think its legacy should be? Well, first of all, that is completely intentional. Um, Even I myself as a historian did not um, get exposed to the story until I was doing graduate doctoral level research and joined a group of historians who were translating these documents. Uh, But I think it's completely intentional. Going back to this moment where we have this question of whether the United States is going to be um, a slave empire, a place of democracy, people like Thomas Jefferson are wrestling with what do you do about slavery, especially as we expanded into the West. And one of the tragic things that happens in American history is we get the Louisiana Territory purchase at the very moment we also happen to discover that cotton grows exponentially in places like Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And so we get the land, we remove Native Americans, and we begin planting crops. And so the German Coast Uprising not only has to be violently uh, squashed, but almost erased from history history because the slave-owning republic does not want anyone to know, especially not the ever-increasing and repopulating enslaved Black population upon which the entire really Western world and industrial revolution is based on. because this is the moment of the industrial revolution and the demand for cotton and sugar in Europe, in the United States, has gone crazy. Right. And you don't want any word of any even um, small success of, of an uprising to, to get out and, and put any thoughts that the enslaved might uh, have some success should they, they try to do the same. You know, what do you think the legacy, though, should be of, of this particular uprising? Yeah. So, I mean, for one, I think the legacy is that humans will always fight for freedom. We can see the incredible steps that were taken by such a diverse group of people, this intense human desire. Um, And it also shatters the myth of the slave docility. So if you think about pop culture, the uh, representation of the Uncle Tom or the benevolent slave. That is not what's going on here. These are educated people. These are organized people. Militarily trained. Militant people who are not just out for bloodshed. They, as I said, understand the beliefs, the core values of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Haitian Revolution, and are saying, I am a human. I also deserve liberty and will fight to the death to do it. And as you alluded to, this is not an isolated event, but it's part of a larger tapestry of resistance woven by enslaved people throughout the Americas. Um, And so part of the legacy should just inform our broader narrative of American history and what that fight for liberty has looked like Um, and, and our continuous struggle against oppression and unending uh, quest for justice. Raylan Barnes is an associate professor of history at Princeton University. Raylan, thanks for being here. Thank you so much.
from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, Raylynn Barnes, Associate Professor of History at Princeton University. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.